All right, welcome back, podcast listeners. We are back today with Dr. Angela Shaw, who is an assistant uh, professor of hematology and oncology at the University of Kentucky. Welcome. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about bleeding and specifically uh, coagulation disorders and what you need to know for the board. So let's just jump right in because I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I absolutely hate the coagulation pathway and all that belongs to it. So I'm excited to learn something today. Uh, The first thing we're going to learn about is congenital bleeding and thrombotic disorders. So can we talk about some clinical findings associated with the congenital coagulation factor deficiencies? Yeah, sure. We can just, do you want to just do like each one? Like we can start with fibrinogen uh, deficiency. Yeah, so we can start kind of work our way down the numbers. So fibrinogen is also known as factor one. Um, Fibrinogen deficiency is pretty rare, um, but there are some very specific findings for it. So a lot of these bleeding disorders and coagulation disorders, you're going to present with some sort of bleeding. Um, And where and how that bleeding occurs is a little bit different depending on what factor is deficient. So fibrinogen or factor one deficiency has a couple, um, or young adults, um, you're thinking about um, recurrent pregnancy losses. So if you have a woman who's got some bleeding symptoms and also kind of has this unexplained recurrent early pregnancy loss, um, you can see that with a fibrinogen deficiency. And also in kids, sometimes it presents um, as a splenic rupture. So they'll have kind of some bleeding symptoms, nosebleeds, bruising, all of the classic pictures that you think of, but they also can come in with a spleen rupture after an injury, which isn't super common in pediatric patients. Yeah, that would kind of suck, wouldn't it? Just a a random spleen rupture? Okay. Yeah. Um, Um, Okay, cool. What else? Do we need to know anything about that one? So that's that's pretty much your kind of important um, presenting symptoms and kind of your board questions. If you've got a kid with bleeding, who presents with a splenic rupture, big fibrinogen deficiency. Okay. How about prothrombin, factor five, and factor seven? So these three um, present in a, a similar fashion. Um, that's kind of why I was thinking of them together. So prothrombin factor two, factor five, and factor seven. And make sure you're not confusing factor five lighting, which is just a mutation in factor five. And this is an actual oh. deficiency in factor five. Okay. Um, so these patients really look like a hemophilia patient, um, but they don't have hemophilia. So they are... Um, you know, bruising, bleeding, joint bleeds, um, bleeding after injections, um, they can present really severely. Um, and, and sometimes they will present as a patient who we think has hemophilia and our, their initial hemophilia workup, for, which is factor eight and factor nine deficiency will be negative. Um, and so you can kind of think of, okay, these are the other ones that present and look like hemophilia. But if they say, throw you a test question where, it's a kid that sounds like they've got hemophilia, but they say that their factor eight and factor nine levels are normal. Um, you might want to look into prothrombin, factor five, or factor seven deficiencies. Okay. Let's see. What about factor 10? So factor 10, um, again, another rare deficiency, um, but this one is kind of unique in the bleeding disorders, and it's not really known why. But this is the one that presents most commonly or more commonly with um, intracranial hemorrhage. 
Atrial cranial hemorrhage occurs more commonly in factor 10 deficiency than any other bleeding disorder. Um, it can occur in um, other ones, but this is kind of the most common one. So sometimes on a test question, they can kind of lead you in that particular direction by saying, oh, this is a patient with an intracranial hemorrhage and other kind of bleeding symptoms hmm. um, without significant injury. Okay. So that one might look like a, like an NAT or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about 11? That's the next one. Factor um, 11 so- deficiency. Factor 11 deficiency is kind of one of those ones that in real life is hard to tease out um, and because usually you don't have a lot of bleeding symptoms until you have some sort of trauma. Um, so it'll be um, they're in an accident and they've got massive amounts of bleeding out of kind of out of proportion to the accident itself or um, they had a lot of post-surgical bleeding for a procedure that shouldn't be having a lot of post-surgical bleeding. Um, and then in kind of in context, they can also present with some kind of mucocutaneous bleeding, so we're thinking nosebleeds and, and gum bleeding kind of out of context or out of proportion with an injury to that area. Okay. Um, what about factor 13? So factor 13 is the one that we think of, um, it presents with bleeding symptoms in babies. So the one that'll pop up and that'll, if they're trying to get you on the boards is, it's a baby whose umbilical stump is bleeding. Um, significantly and more so out of proportion with what you would normally see with um, a regular umbilical cord falling off. Okay. So like, does it happen in the first like day or is it more like when they go home usually? It's usually more often when they, they go home Okay. Uh, that they'll kind of present, although they can present early, um, but a lot of times is that you'll have um, the stump fall off and it'll just bleed and bleed and bleed more than you, you think it should. All right. Well, since we talked about intracranial hemorrhage, the boards do want us to know like how to recognize intracranial bleeding and then what do you do to manage it, which is a little bit on the critical care standpoint as well, but obviously is important from a hematologic standpoint. Yeah. So I see just one of those rare um, presentations in bleeding disorders, but we do see it. The symptoms are the usual ones you would think of for um, you know increased intracranial pressure, the headache vomiting, um, lethargy um, are kind of the common symptoms that present when a child is actively symptomatic. Um, In some bleeding disorders, there are patients who have what we call a silent um, ICH, which is they don't really have any symptoms or they may have had a mild headache um, and come in for something else and then they have head imaging for some reason and it's actually detected that they had an ICH on head head imaging. This happens occasionally um, on uh, for your hemophilia patients. But really, when you're talking about treating these in treating intracranial hemorrhage in patients who have some sort of factor deficiency, um, the most important thing is replace the factor, replace the factor, replace the factor. If you know they have a deficiency and they're coming in with something that sounds like um, a head bleed, one of the best things you can do for them and the thing you need to do emergently is replace their factor because if you can do that, you can help stop the bleeding. And so that that's a really important one. And then kind of as soon as you start doing that, we also consult our friends in neurosurgery to have them evaluate in case there is a severe enough hemorrhage that we have to do some sort of evacuation um, or surgical procedure to help um, eliminate the pressure. But the big one is if you have a patient with a known factor deficiency who presents with intracranial bleeding, um, factor replacement. And that's like, that's so factor eight would be factor eight hemophilia, factor so then you yeah. give factor eight, right? Factor eight. Um, we actually... Um, 
for there's also something called Novo 7, which is a factor 7 um, replacement. Uh, if they have a deficiency that we don't have um, a specific factor product for, you can also do um, replacement either with cryopreservatives or fresh frozen plasma, something like that. And they, because those have different levels of certain clotting factors. So depending on what the deficiency is, um, we can give those if, if we're not able to give like factor eight or factor nine for somebody who has hemophilia. Okay. So FFP or the PCC, is that what you're saying? Yes. If, if you don't know, if you don't have their specific. If it's one that doesn't have a specific um, factor. Okay, cool. Um, I like it at my place where I work because they have an order set in Epic that like you just click what their thing is and it tells you what to order. It's my favorite because I don't have to think. But um, it's hard to keep track of all these. They're all a little, in my brain, confusing. But, okay, cool. So, basically, ICH, you give them their factor, whatever they're missing, and get neurosurgery to put a burr hole in or something. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um, so, let's say that someone comes in for, oh, they bring their kid in because they bruise all the time. And really what you want to do is like roll your eyes because they're a toddler. But what if it, what makes you say, okay, it actually is abnormal. And then what should we do to work that up? Yes. So I probably get one to two new patients a week who are coming in for bruising. Um, and a lot of times it isn't actually a bleeding disorder. So there are a couple of things that lead you to thinking that they um, may have a bleeding disorder rather than just being a regular old toddler. Um, so the easy one is menorrhagia. Um, if you get a teenage girl who's come in who's had super heavy periods from the second they started, you know, because we all know that when kids are starting their periods, then they're irregular. Sometimes they're heavy, sometimes they're light. If you've got a teenager who started their period at age 11 and they're coming in at 13 because they're, you know, it's heavy bleeding for a week every month and it, it doesn't change. And then they also have some other little symptoms, nosebleeds, bleeding when they brush their teeth. That kind of makes you um, think that they might have some kind of bleeding disorder. Um, and so that's kind of the easiest one. With boys, it's a little bit tougher. Some of them will present with excessive bleeding after a circumcision, although that's usually pretty rare. Another common one that we see is they had a tooth taken out and it bled and bled and bled and bled. Um, and they've got all of these bruises. Those are kind of the um, symptoms that you think of. Um, so bleeding out of proportion to whatever their kind of injury was or their surgical procedure was, um, as well as increased bruising. And when we think about bruising, you know, uh, lots of people come in and say they have all these bruises, and they're all small little bruises that are, you know, the size of the end of their finger or the size of a dime. When we really think of excessive bruising you want to think about something that's the size of the kid's palm so it's pretty large um covers a large surface area hematoma formation without you know a, you can get a goose egg because they bump their head on something but there are some kids who there's not really any bruising but they have um, a big hematoma for no real reason that's another one that would um trigger you and then um nosebleeds that um no, you know, that have been seen by EMT and they don't have any vessels that are superficial that may be causing that. You know, unilateral nosebleeds, you think something like a superficial vessel. Bilateral or alternating nostril nosebleeds lead you kind of more to think of something in our realm. Um, and then mucosal bleeding. So if a kid has, um, 
you know, simply do when they brush their teeth and you look in their mouth and they also have some petechiae or some bruising in their mouth, that's when you also want to think that mm, this isn't just regular kid bleeding. This is something going on. Okay, cool. And what would you do to work it up? Like what labs and stuff do you do? Um, so we always start with our, our basics. So you get a CBC, you get a PT and a PTT, um, and you get a peripheral smear because um, that will also, that will allow pathologists to kind of look at the platelets um, under, under the microscope. Um, and then um, the most common bleeding disorder is von Willebrand disease. So we do what we call a von Willebrand panel, which contains three things. It's von Willebrand antigen, von Willebrand activity level, and von Willebrand multimers. And um, we'll also uh, throw in a factor eight because that can, factor eight and von Willebrand work closely together in the coagulation cascade. So it's all kind of part of the workup together. So those are kind of our basic um bleeding disorder workup. So if you if you are going to call a hematologist in the middle of the night with a kid who's got some bruising, that's what we're going to tell you to kind of start with. Okay. And the factor eight, that is that part of von Willebrand or is that part of hemophilia workup? Um, actually, it's both. Um, so von Willebrand um, factor and factor eight kind of bind together in the coagulation cascade. Um, so if you're... Um, Having, there's some patients who have von Willebrand disease and, and the really the ratios are off and so that can kind of help more when we're thinking about um, typing out their von Willebrands which will help us kind of treat them we we check a factor eight level because that helps kind of get the overall picture okay okay so like what what kind of things put like what's the family kind of history that or the inheritance patterns of some of these disorders the you know like the big ones that they like to ask us about yeah, so hemophilia, both hemophilia A and B, so factor 8 and factor 9 deficiency are um, X-linked. So um, you're going to have female carriers and you have affected males in the family. Um, and then a lot of the other little factor deficiencies are going to be um, autosomal recessive. They're super rare diseases. So if you've never heard of something or never seen somebody with something, it's likely an autosomal recessive rare genetic disorder. So that's kind of going back to all those Factor nine or factor ten and factor eleven and factor thirteen deficiencies are all going to be recessive. That's kind of a nice little pearl. You're right. If you don't know about it, it's probably recessive. I mean, probably. It's pretty good. I yeah. like that. Um, okay, let's talk about hemophilia since we've kind of like danced around it a little bit. Let's talk about the clinical manifestations and complications and kind of uh, how you manage it. Even though you kind of already told us. And yeah. maybe like the lab yeah. values, you know, just kind of whatever, the whole thing. Hemophilia is interesting to me. Yeah, so um, hemophilia, um, there's, so there's hemophilia A and B. Hemophilia A is factor um, 8 deficiency. Hemophilia uh, B is a factor 9 deficiency. Um, and so the clinical manifestations really depend on the severity of um, their uh, factor deficiency. So when we talk about severity, we're actually not talking about um, how severe their bleeding symptoms are, we're actually talking about their factor levels. Okay. So patients who have um, severe hemophilia are going to have a factor level less than 1%. So, you know, we think about normal factor percentages, they're up in the 50 and 60 and 70 and 100%. Um, so if somebody who's got severe hemophilia is going to have less than 1% factor. Somebody who has kind of moderate hemophilia is going to have a factor level somewhere in the two to five percent range, um, and then patients, sorry, one to five percent. They're going to have moderate hemophilia, going to be one to five percent. Mild hemophilia patients usually have a factor 
level somewhere between five and forty percent. Um, and so how they present and their presenting symptoms um, are related to um, the severity of their disease. So patients, as you can imagine, patients who have more severe disease present earlier in life. Um, so patients with severe hemophilia, that, fa- that factor level less than 1%, are going to present anywhere from birth until about two or three years of age. Um, so they are the ones who have neonatal bleeding with like a circumcision or they had a, a heel stick for their um, newborn strain and it bled like crazy. Um, they also kind of vaccine-related bleeding. Um, and then as they get a little bit older, they have mucosal bleeding. And then when they get into that kind of um, toddler range, they can start having um, joint bleeds. Patients who kind of have moderate hemophilia, so they've got that factor level between one and five um, percent, they, they present usually somewhere once they're toddlers to kids. They are less likely to present with some kind of neonatal bleeding, so they don't usually present with like bleeding after a circumcision. Um, they can have some like vaccine-related bleeding and then mucosal bleeds and joint bleeds. Mild hemophilia sometimes don't even present until they really have a, a significant insult. So um, they'll have the, a kid who was in an accident. They didn't know that they had hemophilia, but they had a lot of post-traumatic bleeding that's out of proportion um, for what the accident was. Um, or they went in to have their tonsils taken out and they had lots more bleeding than they should have with a, a tonsillectomy. That maybe might lead you to think that they have a mild hemophilia that just wasn't diagnosed early on. Yeah, that's um, not the greatest the, way to find out, is it, after a tonsillectomy? No, no, it's Oh, not. my gosh. Um, I hate tonsillectomy. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it happens that way um, just because they're forgotten, you know. Oh, yeah, grandpa used to. Because it's usually, you know, since it's excellent, right. um, mom doesn't have any symptoms and mom forgot that her dad Oh, he used to take medicine for something. We have happens um, occasionally. Got it. Okay. Well, interesting. And then the treatment. So for factor for for hemophilia A, is factor eight replacement? Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yep. And factor nine, or I'm sorry, and hemophilia B, B is factor nine. Replacement. Is factor yeah. nine. Okay. Um, and so um, we've gotten a lot better. Um, there's a lot more factors available now than there there used to be um so a lot of kids um when they're diagnosed early on um they get started on prophylaxis um and so that actually helps kind of decrease their risk of arthropathy you know if you see patients who are 35 40 years old who have hemophilia they've got kind of these big swollen stiff joints from having recurrent bleeds and so um, a lot of kids now these days we can um start them on what we call prophylactic factor, where we, we treat them a couple of times a week with factor um, and help keep their levels up. Um, How and, do you, do you uh, inject that or do you, is it a pit? Yeah, like, is it a sub-Q or um, something? Well, actually it's um, usually it's, it's IV. So the families actually get pretty good at doing it. Oh. Uh, and then even some of the, when they get older, we have some teenagers who do their own. Um, they usually can do it so the, the veins in their hands. Um, are kind of more commonly where they would kind of put them. So we have some kids who get, administer their own factor. Oh, wow. Um, we have some kids, you know, who their family is squeamish and it's not their thing, so they come to clinic and, and we do it for them. Um, but there are some kids who do that on their own. Um, and there's even kind of on the horizon, there's um, lots of genetic testing and um, genetic um, modifications that we're, we're trying to do to kind of 
it's that. So we've got some kids on some clinical trials about that that are really interesting. That's a topic for another day, but very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so then let's do the other one that everyone knows about is von Willebrand, von Willebrand disease. Yep, so von Willebrand's disease is the most common bleeding disorder, um, and it's really going to present with mucocutaneous bleeding. So you're going to present with nosebleeds, oral bleeding, um, or post-surgical bleeding, particularly if you've got some kind of um, mouth um, tooth extraction, dental surgery, something like that. Um, tonsillectomy, you'll have lots of bleeding there. Easy bruisability, and just like we talked about, big bruises, not just little um, regular kid bruises, but big, large bruises. Um, and then the teenage girls who present with anorexia, or um, kind of young women can present with um, postpartum bleeding. Let's talk about how do you treat von Willebrand disease, like when they have um, maybe just like daily, and also when they're like bleeding really bad. Yes, yeah, so um, with von Willebrand disease, when we diagnose patients, kind of the first thing um, we we think about um, is DDAVP. Um, so that's a, a big treatment for us. So we have um, what we call it, the brand name is Stymate. So we'll do um, a Stymate trial um, and kind of test their levels before and after we get the medication um, because it helps release von Willebrand factor. Um, so we'll kind of do that. And if it, that works for the patient, if their levels come up with it, then their um, big treatment is something like DDAVP. So if somebody's got mild mucosal bleeding, so there's somebody who gets nosebleeds, um, they get some bleeding with their brushing your teeth, um, a lot of times we'll do DDAVP after they've had a nosebleed. Um, sometimes we'll do some topical thrombin um, to the kind of the throat affected area. And then we can have uh, antifibrinolytics, which kind of um, prevent your body from breaking down the clot that it's already made. And a lot of the von Willebrand symptoms we kind of treat with um, these things, DDAVP, antifibrinolytics. Um, antifibrinolytics we use a lot for menorrhagia, as well as OCPs to kind of suppress their periods if that's something that they're interested in. So a lot of times they'll be on both antifibrinolytic, like the Stata, and um, an OCP. Most of them, your minor surgeries, um, that's not going to have a lot of bleeding, you know, ear tubes, something like that. You do DDAVP, um, antifibrinolytics, and then there's some kind of topical therapy to the area if we can. And if they need major surgery, um, we can actually do von Willebrand factor replacement before their surgery and after their surgery, kind of like they're a hemophilia patient, and then also do the kind of antifibrinolytics as well. Can I ask what what's an example of an antifibrinolytic? I've never really heard that word, but um, I'm also an idiot, so don't. So the big one, one of the most common ones we use is transexamic acid. Oh, TSA, uh, my favorite drug. <laughs> use yeah, that so thing that, all the time. Uh, <laughs> um, so it it stops kind of um, breaking down blood clots. So we call those antifibrinolytics in in hemoc. So transdynamic acid. That's a big one that we um, use, particularly for women with brain disease who um, have heavy periods. Okay. Well, so that was great. Lots of bleeding disorder, uh, coagulation disorder, stuff to know. Uh, any last words on these biggest ones? It sounds like our hemophilia and von Willebrand. Is that about right? Yep. Those are, is von Willebrand's the most common one, and hemophilia is probably the most well-known bleeding disorder. Um, so those are probably the ones that would be, appear um, on a... In, for a patient, as it would appear in your ER, and then would appear on the test questions. And if they're bleeding, give them what they don't have. 
Exactly. That seems actually fairly easy. <laughs> Until it's in real life and they're bleeding out and you're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? But that sounds perfect. And uh, thanks so much for covering it with us. And we will have you back again to talk about more Hemong stuff. Thank you.